This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours on a lovely Tuesday afternoon. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. Broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi and in studio with me, making sure that you stay abreast of all things Africa, I do have uh, Jualani Tulo, Tracy Boomgard and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Peter Mutarika was sworn in for another five-year second term. Today marks Menstrual Health Day. In economics, Rwanda's Nyagatare district enters into a partnership with the Farmers Association to construct a maize factory with capacity to process 30 tons of maize per day. And in sport, coach Tabo Senong confident that his charges will see off uh, Korea Republic in a crunch FIFA under 20 World Cup group match tonight. Like I did say, I'm not alone in the studio tonight. Hello, Jwalani. Hi, Samara. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank mm. you. So a lot of things happening in uh, some miscellaneous news today mm. with regards to uh, you know hashtags on Twitter. Uh, one that caught my eye today definitely has to be now that Cyril keep president. <laughs> For you, what is the one thing that you think will change now that Cyril keep president? I don't know, but he must cow Leza. I agree he <laughs> said he we must tumor him. He must cow Leza with all his promises. Oh. <laughs> you sound like coconut cows. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's time for us to cross it over to the news desk here, Jalani Tulo, with your news bulletin. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Malawian President Peter Mutarika has been sworn in for another five-year second term in office. This comes a day after the Malawi High Court in Lilongwe vacated a court injunction that restrained the Electoral Commission from releasing results. Opposition figures had objected to the results, citing manipulation. Here's Mutarika taking his oath of office. I, Professor Arthur Peter Mutarika, I, Professor Arthur Peter Mutarika, do solemnly swear, swear that I will well and truly perform, that I will well and truly perform the functions of the High Office of President, the functions of the High Office of President of the Republic of Malawi of the Republic of Malawi and that I will preserve and defend the Constitution and that I will preserve and defend the Constitution and that I will do right to all manner of people and that I will do right to all manner of people according to law according to law without fear or favor without fear or favor affection or ill will affection or ill will so help me God so help me God 
South Africa's ruling ANC Deputy President David Mabuza has been sworn in as a Member of Parliament at the Sefako Makato Presidential Guest House in the capital Pretoria. He postponed his swearing-in ceremony last week, requesting that he still had to respond to the ANC's Integrity Commission report. The report followed allegations of corruption levelled against him while he was still the Premier of the Mpumalanga province. While it is still not clear when President Cyril Ramaphosa is going to announce his new executive, Mabuza swearing in as an MP paves way for him to become the country's deputy president. He was sworn in by Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng. I, Tabete David Mabuza, swear that I will be faithful to the Republic of South Africa and will obey, respect and uphold the constitution and all other law of the Republic. And I solemnly promise to perform my function as a member of the National Assembly to the best of my ability. Would you please raise up your right hand and say, so help me God. So help me God. Human Rights Watch has accused the Egyptian military of committing widespread abuses against civilians in the Sinai Peninsula. The security forces are battling IS militants in the area. The BBC's Alan Johnston has more. The Egyptian authorities prevent journalists from going to Sinai, but this major Human Rights Watch report, compiled over two years, says that while the military wages its war on the militants, it shows utter contempt for local civilians. The report says hundreds have been killed or injured. The security forces are accused of making arbitrary arrests, using torture and carrying out extrajudicial killings. Human Rights Watch says the militants are also guilty of horrific crimes. Violence in northwest Nigeria has forced around 20,000 refugees to flee neighboring Niger since April. The United Nations Refugee Agency has voiced concern about the deteriorating security conditions in the West African country. Military and police have been deployed to tackle criminal gangs behind a spate of kid- killings and kidnappings. UNHCR spokesperson Baba Baloch says the violence is not Boko Haram related. The announcement comes a day before the inauguration of President Muhammadu Buhari. And finally, two cases of polio have been reported in the Central African Republic. The cases reported to the World Health Organization on May 24th were caused by vaccine-derived polio rather than the wild type of the virus. There is a high risk of transmission of the virus as both cases were among internally displaced persons. Latest figures from the Global Polio Eradication Initiative show there have been 10 vaccine-derived polio cases this year, eight in Nigeria, one in Somalia, and one in the DRC. Polio is a virus that spreads in areas with poor sanitation. It attacks the nervous system and can cause irreversible paralysis within hours of infection. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. A day after Malawi's High Court in Lilongwe vacated a, a court injunction that restrained the Electoral Commission from releasing results, Peter Mutarika was sworn in for another five-year second term Tuesday afternoon. Mutarika's younger brother to ex-president, the late Bingu Wa Mutarika, was re-elected through the May 21st presidential polls. Some opposition figures feel such polls were heavily manipulated. George Mhango reports from Blantyre. I, Professor Arthur Peter Mutarika. I, Professor Arthur Peter Mutarika.
do solemnly swear, swear that I will well and truly perform, well and truly perform the functions of the High Office of President, the functions of the High Office of President of the Republic of Malawi, of the Republic of Malawi, and that I will preserve and defend the Constitution, and that I will preserve and defend the Constitution, and that I will do right to all manner of people, and that I will do right to all manner of people, according to law, according to law, without fear or favor, without fear or favor. Affection or ill will. Affection or ill will. So help me God. So help me God. This characterized the event at Kamuzu Stadium in Blantyre from where thousands of Tariqa supporters gathered to witness the event which in 2014 took place in the court chambers. Constitutionally, Malawi's vice president is also elected by voters and in the event that the president is incapacitated or dies, the vice takes over automatically. In this case, Malawians also elected Everton Chimurirenji as the country's vice president. He also took oath of office at the same event. I, Everton Elbert Chimurirenji, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear, that I will well and truly perform, that I will well and truly perform the functions of the High Office of Vice President, the functions of the High Office of Vice President of the Republic of Malawi, of the Republic of Malawi, and that I will preserve and defend the Constitution, and that I will preserve and defend the Constitution, and that I will do right to all manner of people. And that I would do right to all man of people, according to law, according to law, without fear or favor, without fear or favor, affection or ill will. Mutarika secured 1.9 million votes, opposition leader Lazarus Chakwira 1.7 million, and Saulo Chilima 1 million votes. Almost 6.8 million out of the 17 million Malawians were registered to vote in the tripartite elections, which saw seven presidential candidates standing. Mutarika's previous five year was dodged by what human rights analysts say corruption at government level, human rights abuses by police, killing and abduction of persons with albinism. Tariqa, who is 79 years old, went into the campaign trail with so many promises targeting both the youth and adults. Such promises included the farm input subsidy program, road infrastructural development, social cash transfer, construction of community technical colleges, and further to this, the introduction of internship programs targeting the unemployed graduates. Mutarika, in his brief speech, called for joint efforts with the opposition to transform Malawi. Thank you, Malawi. This victory is a victory of the people. My victory is a victory of the rule of law. This is a victory of democracy. For the first time in the history of this country, this election was entirely funded from our own Malawi resources. Democratically, Mutarika becomes the fifth president to lead the country since 1994 when Malawi voted out the British colonial rule. There was no princess of presidents from neighboring countries such as Zambia, Mozambique, Tanzania and Zimbabwe. Ex-president Joyce Banda, 
former vice president Saulos Chilima, Kumbo Kachali, Kasim Chirumpa and Justin Malewezi boycotted. It was not clearly known whether they were invited or not. George Mhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Moving from Malawi to Sudan, where a two-day national strike called by demonstrators is underway. The strike was called to put pressure on the military council to hand power to civilians as soon as possible. James Shimanyula takes up the story. Countrywide strike called by demonstrators is taking place in Sudan. The two-day strike has already paralyzed the operations and the businesses in the capital Khartoum. No more operations at Khartoum Airport have also come to a standstill. The strike was called by leaders of demonstrators after several attempts to reach an agreement with the military council to hand power to civilians failed to bear fruit. The military council seized power in Sudan following last month's toppling of President Omar Hassan Ahmed el-Bashir, who has ruled the country for 33 years. The argument between members of the military council and leaders of demonstrators is centered on who should rule the country, civilians or soldiers. Leaders of demonstrators have planned to lead a transitional government for three years ahead of post-El-Bashir presidential and parliamentary elections. The ongoing strike comes shortly after the head of the ruling military council, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah Abdel Rahman Burhan, concluded official visits to three countries. He visited Abu Dhabi last Saturday, he was in Egypt last Sunday, and on Monday he visited neighboring South Sudan. Details of his visit to Abu Dhabi remain unknown. In Cairo, President Abdel Assisi discussed at length with his visitor the current situation in Sudan. However, no details were made public. Burhan's visit to Egypt was important because he and President Abdel Assisi were at one time classmates at a military university in Cairo. In South Sudan, Lieutenant General Burhan was asked by President Salva Kiir to ensure that peace prevails in the country and that the very peace should pave the way for the handing of power to a civilian government. Shortly after Burhan returned to Khartoum from South Sudan, he spoke laconically in Arabic on the demonstrators' demand for a civilian administration. We are prepared to hand civilians power that they are demanding. The military council is working hard to fulfill the demonstrators' demand. I appeal to you people of Sudan to remain peaceful as we plan to hand power to civilians. That was head of Sudan military council, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah Abdel Rahman Burhan. However, Bruhan did not explain how and when the handing of power to civilians will take place. As the people of Sudan wait for the handing of power to civilians be done by the military council, the countrywide strike continues. Earlier on Tuesday, uniformed and ununiformed policemen were locked in running battles with the demonstrators on the streets of Khartoum. This ambience tells it all. And at one stage, a demonstrator was subjected to a rough cough when a tear gas canister was lobbed at him. 
to confirm that uniformed and ununiformed policemen were locked in running battles with the demonstrators. Here is a Khartoum businessman, Al-Haj Sadiq Osman. Some of them were wearing police uniform. Some of them were wearing civilian clothes. That was a Khartoum businessman, Al-Haj Sadiq Osman, summing up for us street battles between the demonstrators and security personnel. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Egyptian security forces have committed widespread abuses against civilians in the rest of northern Sinai Peninsula, some of which amount to war crimes. This is according to a new report by the time the New York-based uh, rights group Human Rights Watch. The report, entitled "If You Are Afraid for Your Lives, Leave Sinai: Egyptian Security Forces and ISIS Affiliate Abuses in North Sinai," accuses security forces of arbitrary arrests, including children and extrajudicial killings. Armed groups have long existed in North Sinai, but attacks against government installations, uh, military forces, and Israeli troops began to rise after the 2011 uprising that led to the resignation of the long-time president Hosni Mubarak. To tell us more about the report, we are joined on the line by Michael Page, Deputy Director of Middle East and North Africa at Human Rights Watch, and he is joining us on the line from New York in the United States. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Page. Thank you so much for having me. All right, now, Michael, can you take us through the key findings of the report and what you are hoping to achieve through it? Yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, we have spent kind of almost two years, if not two years, of, of investigating very serious abuses by the Egyptian army and other security forces as they battle the ISIS affiliate Sinai province in the North Sinai Governorate. And what we found is is that the Egyptian army, rather than protecting civilians as is their duty and obligation, has actually committed a spectrum of very serious abuses against them, and that's everything from enforced disappearances, extrajudicial executions of detainees, torture and detention facilities, killing of civilians at checkpoints. And so what we want to get out of this is, is several things. One, which is we want to push the Egyptian authorities to actually take seriously the need for uh, accountability of the Egyptian army mm-hmm. in terms of their behavior and change behavior in the Sinai. Because just even based on a a counterinsurgency perspective, it's never a good idea to be abusing local residents as you're trying to fight extremist groups. That's only going to push people further away. And what we need is to build trust between the Egyptian authorities and the civilians. But the second point is that it's very important for uh, Egypt's allies, and this includes the African Union uh, and when within it, the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, to condemn the Egyptian security forces' behavior in the North Sinai to make statements condemning abuses by all parties and to really investigate and put this at the top of its agenda and as part of, for instance, the Peace and Security Council of the African Union. And so Egypt plays a big role within the African Union framework. What we need is for states to take a strong position against what has been an incredibly well-documented set of abuses that has gone on far too long. 
All right, now, Michael, um, how many Egyptians have you spoken to as part of your uh, investigation? So we've documented over 50 cases of arbitrary detention. We have documented 14 cases of extrajudicial execution, and we have documented at least 10 cases of mistreatment or torture in detention facilities. And so we've talked with both Egyptian, dozens of, of Egyptians, both on the issue of Egyptian army abuses, and it's important to emphasize not just Egyptian army abuses, but also Sinai province, which is the, the ISIS affiliate in North Sinai, abuses against civilians. And ISIS affiliate abuses are also quite horrific, which includes uh, execution and beheadings of civilians that they've kidnapped, as well as detained soldiers that they've taken. And so, yet yeah, we've investigated over two years. And I want to emphasize the reason this research has taken so long is that essentially Sinai is, is, is essentially a closed military zone where independent media or rights groups are de facto banned for reporting on it. And more than that, there have been at least three cases of Egyptian journalists and bloggers who have been arrested and actually sentenced for years in prison simply for doing their job of reporting on the Sinai conflict. And let's speak about the response from the other side, because I suppose that you've spoken to Egyptian authorities regarding the abuses as well, right? Well, I mean, unfortunately, the, the, the answer has been a stunning silence. Mm. We have reached out multiple times to Egyptian authorities on the Sinai over the past several years, to the defense, uh, to the president's office, We've, we've, we've continued to try to engage the Egyptian authorities uh, uh, as part of this research process, but unfortunately it's really been a stonewalling of rights groups. And you know, as, as you might know, HRW has had significant difficulties and the Egyptian research team has not been able to actively work in Egypt for a number of years, actually since our report on another serious set of violations, the Rabat massacres that occurred in 2013. So we haven't been back uh, as, as researchers openly uh, since 2014 when we released the Rabat massacre report. So it's it, seemingly this is something that uh, keeps happening because in the past the Egyptian government has responded to accusations of rights abuses by saying strong security measures were needed to curb Islamic State and other jihadists on its soil. Uh, how do you respond to this? Well, it, that's it, it's just it's such a ridiculous claim because while governments of course have a responsibility to protect the civilians and we again document in the report the very serious violations that Sinai province the ISIS affiliate is committing in the Sinai uh, in the Sinai peninsula the the whole point of of Egyptian uh, army's presence and and the counterinsurgency campaign should put at the forefront protecting civilians from ISIS abuses as well as trying to reduce any kind of civilian casualties. What our report finds is that the exact opposite is happening. I mean, especially in the case of there has been such a, uh, a, a huge number of arbitrary detentions and enforced disappearances of civilians that have no recourse. They have no ability to, to complain, to try to find their loved ones, to go to trial. No one has been punished for any types of abuses. The Egyptian army uh, uh, authorities and spokespersons uh, almost never admit mistakes 
There is very little transparency around the issues of compensation. So if you are a civilian in the Sinai and your home has been, been damaged by airstrikes or other ground shelling by the Army, there's very little clarity about how people actually get support for that. So this is why HRW is, is really focusing on this, because it's been such an underreported topic, and it's something that it's critical for the Egyptian army to do if they want to actually be successful in the long term of ending this threat of militant extremists in the Sinai region. Michael, thank you very much for joining us on the line and letting us know what is happening uh, in Egypt and how Human Rights Watch is trying to combat that. Um, And hopefully your call to the United States uh, as well as other uh, international partners to help military and security assistance will be heeded in order to make sure that uh, you get your message across. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And that was Michael Page, Deputy Director of Middle East and North Africa at Human Rights Watch. Thank you very much to him again for joining us. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa. The 2019 edition of the Africa Health Exhibition and Congress has opened in Midrand, north of South Africa's Johannesburg City. Now, in its ninth year, the meeting is regarded as a leading platform for healthcare professionals and medical experts to share insights to addressing the continent-specific healthcare needs. More from Ryan Sanderson, the exhibition director at Informa Life Sciences. The show's been running for, this is its ninth year, just under a decade ago. Yeah, and it's just growing year on year. And I think we're at the point now where it's, um, it's grown significantly in last year. So here we are. Are you saying that you've seen continued interest in the number of exhibitors, delegates and visitors coming from the African continent? Yeah, absolutely. So every year we try and create an environment that allows people from all over the continent to network, to come together, to benefit from some top quality education And I think what we're trying to do with Africa Health is create a market or a platform that brings the entire healthcare community together, you know, for sort of various benefits over the course of the three days. I think this year we've got close to 100 exhibitors more than last year. We've grown the show by a couple of thousand square meters and we've added four new conference tracks. The interest in the registrations, you know, sort of as we open, we're through the roof. So, yeah, I think the continued involvement just shows there's a real appetite for the sorts of events that we're putting on in South Africa and Africa as a whole. What are some of the healthcare problems that continue to plague the continent that delegates will discuss this year? Well, I think Africa is quite unique and it's got its own very individual sort of set of problems. And, you know, I think there is still a big fight against malaria. There's still a big fight against tuberculosis. Obviously, HIV is still prevalent as a problem within the country. You know, in terms of the infectious diseases, those are always things that we need to try and apply the most modern methodologies to overcome those sorts of problems that are associated with those very severe diseases. You know, there's still a lot of work to be done on the inoculation front. I mean, to make sure that sort of vaccines are made available across the continent to stop you know, sort of polio and some of the other diseases that are out there. Then you've also, you know, I think Africa tends to have a very high population growth rate. Because of some of the advancements in the medical industry as well, though, and some of the benefits that I think people are seeing, you're also getting a population that's becoming older. 
So there's more of the uh, the non-communicable types of diseases like diabetes and heart-related issues that are becoming more problematic, especially for some of the more elderly population across the continent. So a lot like the rest of the world, there's a lot of health-related issues that need to be focused on. Nine years into the event, how instrumental has it been in devising solutions to some of the problems that you spoke about? You know, this is the sort of event where you're getting people coming together that don't often spend much time in the same space. So you have some of, you know, some of the real genius minds in the medical field. They can only start to, you know, build better solutions and come up with improved patient outcomes through these sorts of interactions. So much happens on email and telephone and what have you in this day and age. I think there's a real value and a real power to putting people together. You know, we bring a lot of policymakers in from all the neighboring countries. There's a lot of the ministers of health and their deputies that attend this event. So in terms of actually structuring policy that makes a real difference to patients, I think this sort of event is crucial to provide, you know, the opportunity for them to discuss these matters. Tell us about the challenges that you were confronted with in putting so many people together. Oh, there's always a lot of problems with shows like this. You know, you are talking about a, a massive, massive area. So for us to get, you know, sort of the penetration into all the neighboring countries and to build up those relationships, that takes my team and myself an awful lot of time. It's a very busy world. So to get people to actually write or, or to sort of agree to spending, you know, the three days that we have the show over, Open, to actually get them to sort of block that off in their diary it can be challenging sometimes. The date cycle for this event is very, very close to the World Health Organization Assembly in Geneva. So for us to try and get the ministers back from that event to obviously come and engage in, in sort of a more African context is a challenge. But yeah, I mean, on the whole, I guess there's just a lot of operation and logistical sort of related issues that we have to overcome. But as the show continues to grow and, you know, the quality of the event continues to improve, I think it becomes a little bit easier for us to overcome those sorts of challenges. What will make you say that the event was a success when it closes this coming Thursday? I mean, what we basically do is we create an environment for people to have conversations. So a lot of the successes that will have been born out of this event in particular will only really start to, to see the fruit of in sort of the months and years to come. But for us, we look at the metrics about the number of exhibitors we've had. We look at the number of people who've attended both the conferences and the exhibition. And then obviously we work very closely with a lot of the exhibitors and our strategic partners. So their direct feedback will give us a taste to how it's gone. So very, very optimistic that it's going to be um, well received and this is going to be an event for, well, one for the record books, but we'll take yeah, feedback from our exhibitors and speakers, etc. once the show closes. What happens to the proceeds collected this week? The thing with the conferences that we run, I mean, there's 18 conferences in total that take place over the three days. Our remit is a business. We're not trying to make money out of those conferences at all. So we have got international quality education available. It's all accredited, so that will count towards um, career progression and development. What we do with all the proceeds from all the conferences is that's just um, it's put together in a lump sum and donated to a local charity. This year we're working with the Reach for a Dream Foundation. So all the proceeds we collect from attendance to the conferences will be handed over to them. And that was Ryan Sanderson, Exhibition Director at and former Life Sciences, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Let's cross on over to the news desk right now. Here's your news headlines with Jwalani Tulo.
Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, Malawian President Peter Motarika has been sworn in for another five-year second term in office. South Africa's ruling ANC Deputy President David Mabuza has also been sworn in as Member of Parliament at the Safako Makato Presidential Guest House in the capital, Pretoria. And finally, violence in northwestern in northwest Nigeria has forced around 20,000 refugees to flee to neighboring Niger since April. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholami Tulo. Leading Jamaican United Kingdom-based reggae poet Linton Gwesi Johnson, or LKJ, uh, will tonight deliver the keynote Africa Month address at the Soweto Theatre in South Africa. This is part of Africa Month festivities that are celebrating literary African heroes. This year's Africa Month celebrations are centered on the theme celebrating 25 years of democracy, building a better Africa and a better world. The country's Department of Arts and Culture is hosting a colloquia on the literally the literary arts as part of its Africa Month celebrations. And the program will also feature readings by acclaimed South African writers, including Don Matera, James Matthews, Diana Ferris, and Cindy Magona, as well as musical interludes by other artists. Ferris is internationally known and acclaimed for the poem that she wrote for the indigenous South African woman, Sarah Batman, who was taken away from her country under false pretenses and paraded as a sexual freak in Europe. Ferris joins us on the line. Hello, 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 and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you, hello, thanks for having me. Uh, could you uh, sum up the significance of celebrating Africa as an African literary giant for us? Um, yes, you know, we as Africans, we are still healing. And um, I believe that in the literary, um, in the literary, in the literary field, we're trying very much to heal Africa. So what a wonderful way by, you know, of celebrating Africa through the literary arts and great writers. I mean, there's been just been an explosion for the past 20, um, 30 years of African writers on the literary scene. And um, it's such a good thing. And for us in South Africa, uh, we must uh, really feel honored that we can invite, you know, writers from all over the world, African descent, writers from Africa to celebrate with us. Could you tell us a little bit more about your contribution at this evening's event at the Soweto Theatre? What will you be doing? Um, I will be, <laughs> I will be reciting. I will be performing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. one or two of my poems, and as, uh, especially the one that is in, you know, that is in huge demand. My tribute to Sarah Bartman, and um, then I will be reading a poem by uh, James Matthews who turned uh, 90 on Saturday, and um, it will be a Africa celebration, and we'll be celebrating James as well. Let's speak a little bit about how colonialism eroded African pride. Um, from yes. the eyes of the writer, and I think maybe speaking from the eyes of a writer in general, and then from your eyes specifically. Um. Yeah, you know, we were written about, and not in a very good way. Uh, If we think of Sarah Bartman and uh, what they did to her after they dissected her body, got a brain and a genitalia, the scientists of Kuvia 
the scientist Kuvia and Jesse Sengeler, they wrote books then showing that, uh, or saying that the brain and the hair and all that, the genitalia showed that Sarah Barton is not really a fully, a full human being. She is what Darwin would call a, um, the missing link between human and ape. And that, you know, we, 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 totally, we are totally being stripped of, of our humanity just through what they wrote about us. Mm-hmm. And it's our, it's our duty to, um, to, to, to write them into what they said about, into, you know, oblivion and to reclaim ourselves, to bring our pride back as a beautiful people, as a beautiful continent through our writings. And how, how important are events like the one that you'll be attending tonight um, when it comes to changing that mentality and changing the way that Africans feel about themselves and instilling pride in who they are? Yeah, tonight it, uh, tonight's event, it, people will be coming, they'll be, be coming from, you know, at the Joburg Theatre, um, brought to the Soviet Theatre. It's a huge event. Um, you know, literary giants and Dewey Magona, Donatera and James Matthews and Lyndon Percy Johnson will be there. And it's essential for people, for people, ordinary people to see, you know, the efforts that's been made to write us back into our pride, into our dignity. And uh, this is very important. I'm very happy that the Department of Arts and Culture thought of this. They do it every year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and to, to go on despite, you know, problems here or problems there, financial problems, to try and put things like this up. And, you know, amongst the people in Soweto, you know, where people can come and listen to these literary giants and listen to what they have done. Mm. So this is especially for, you know, for upcoming writers as well uh, to, to see people that they my writers that they might have admired to maybe interact with them a little bit of how do you go about, you know, um, writing and, and, and you know, uh, um, reaching the levels that these writers have. Now, lastly, Diane, I just want to ask you, uh, this year's Africa Month celebrations are centered on the theme celebrating 25 years of democracy, building a better Africa and a better world. Yeah. Do you think, or, or how far do you think we are from building that better Africa and better world? Is it something that is possible in the next couple of years? I, I think it is possible. I think our election showed now there's a maturing democracy. We are, um, you know, we, we are maturing. We are, I think we are serious about Building mm. a South Africa, and, yes. and 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 the way that we went about in establishing the African Union, and um, you know, and, and and having an Africa Day, that shows to me that we we can accomplish that sooner than later. This is my real positive talk, and mm. I believe that. And can I recite a poem uh, for you that I wrote after my after my mother and I went? vote for the first time. That would be an absolute delight. <laughs> I call this poem That Day. That day on April 27, 
1994, I took my mother's hand, for it was a new day in our land. She was 68, and I was 41, and as the morning sun made its daily run, we walked slowly, step by step. The roads were about, but our minds were clear. A new day in our lives was here. On wobbly legs, she entered the hall. But with head held high, she suddenly looked so tall. I watched as she made her cross, as we regained the dignity that we had lost. That day, on April 27, 1994, I took my mother's hand for it was a new day in our land. And that, ladies and gentlemen, all across Africa is Diana Ferris, South African writer, academic poet and storyteller. Thank you very much for joining us on the line and uh, all the best with the event for tonight. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Today... Today marks Menstrual Health Day. Every day, thousands of South African girls are forced to miss school because they don't have access to sanitary products while they're having their periods. Many resort to using unsafe substitutes for sanitary products like newspapers, rags and leaves. In response, the insurance company in the country, King Price, is running an ongoing initiative dubbed, uh, dubbed Making a Difference in partnership with local charity The Dignity Campaign. The partnership is helping girls and women in rural areas get free menstrual cups and reusable pads. For more on this issue and the Menstrual Health Day, here's King Price's uh, Siamtanda Williams. It would be interesting for your listeners to know that this day was initiated by a German-based NGO um, called WASH United in 2014. So the reason why it's celebrated on the 28th is because our menstrual cycles usually last for an average of 28 days. And it was to basically raise awareness and get publicity around menstrual hygiene issues. Let's reflect on the extent of the problem around menstrual health. What are some of the burning issues that we need to be addressing? One of the the burning issues that we've come to realize with the start of this campaign was that millions of girls, of South African girls, miss an average of a week of school every month because of their period. It begs the question, where are we meant to find the next generation of female leaders if they are missing school this much? And then from my own experience, I've also seen that when I um, got onto my period, I didn't know what my period was until the day that my period actually happened. So I believe that this still really proves true to millions of girls in South Africa that they, they are not aware of what menstruation is. They're not aware of why it happens to them as girls and what the next step is once you get onto your period. I like how you connect menstruation and and missing out on opportunities to become leaders because girls are forced to stay out of school. 100%, 100%. And that is a passion. That is a passion that we need to carry, all of us, to make sure these next generation, these next females are going to school and are not missing out of school because of something as simple as menstruation. 
Now, apart from that, you also spoke about lack of knowledge, young girls understanding what's happening to them when they are on their menstrual cycle. Let's talk mm-hmm. about that because sometimes I feel like we sometimes yes. forget about those girls who do not necessarily have problem with the lack of access to sanitary pads or whatever they need yes. for their menstrual cycle, but just knowing what to do and understanding what's happening. Around. Yes. Can we talk about that? So the NGO that we've partnered up with is called the Dignity Campaign. And what's beautiful about them is that they don't only go out there and give sanitary pads to those that are deserving or not. They go out there and they educate the female child. What is menstruation? What is your body going through? What options do you have when it comes to menstruation? Because it's so easy to say, okay, here's a packet of pads that, you know, use that and, you know, carry on with your, with your menstruation period. But there's other options. So we need to be addressing issues such as what is menstruation? Why do you menstruate as a female child? What options are there when you are on your period? And we need to also really focus on the myths and truths around alternative menstrual hygiene products. There's menstrual cups, there's menstrual pads, there's reusable menstrual pads, there's tampons. And therefore, we need to educate the girl child on their options and we need to educate them on why it is that they are on their period. When you talk about myths around what to use for menstruation, what are some of the interesting things that you've heard? So one of the interesting ones that I've heard since I was a child till now, since I started my period, is the tampon myth that if you use a tampon, you will break your virginity or you will lose your virginity. And I think there's a huge education element that still needs to be done. One now with the menstrual cups, that they are not hygienic um, and they're not good for you. It's an option that you have, and each girl needs to make their own research or be exposed to research that allows them to make the best choice for them. For instance, if, if you use the reusable uh, menstrual pads, you have those for five years. You're able to use them for five years, and that eliminates the challenge of having to buy menstrual pads every single month. And that was Sam Tanda Williams from the insurance company in South Africa, King Price on the line talking to Jane Robotato. The time is now 17.45 Central African time. It's time for us to cross on over to the money desk. Here is Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Samora. Nigeria's Adamawa state government has blamed banks for the non-payment of workers' salaries. Commissioner for Finance Mahmoud Sali told the plenary session that the outgoing government has no records of its transaction with Zenith Bank in Yola. He also said the government has been unable to draw funds from the bank to pay part of the owed salaries. Tanzania's Workers' Compensation Fund and Zambia's Workers' Compensation Fund Control Board have signed a Memorandum of Cooperation to share experiences and innovations in order to efficiently serve their members. Following the signing, both parties were optimistic that the two funds will come up with products and innovations that will make them stars of social security institutions in Africa. Statistician General Risenga Maluleke says overall the standard of living for South African households has improved since 2002. 
Rusenga released the 2018 General Household Survey. The figure stipulates that formal housing has increased from 8 million in 2002 to over 13 million in 2018. However, due to the ever-increasing demand for housing, particularly in metropolitan provinces, it remains a massive housing shortfall. Electricity has also been found to be more accessible as use of paraffin and wood for cooking. Meanwhile, access to social grants provisions has also increased through Remain's unsustainable means of survival for most of the more than 15 million beneficiaries. Maluleke explains. Certainly grants are not sustainable. If you look, we have grants that are made available for younger people and then there is a gap once you no longer qualify in terms of being young. You are completely out and when you are completely out, you wait until you are about 60 years to get mudend. So you cannot have a society of people who are aspiring to grow a lot more older so that they can get mudend. Obviously, people should grow, uh, aspire to grow, but they must have other ways of uh, economic uh, activity in the form of employment. Chinese tech giant Huawei is reconsidering its relationship with FedEx Corp. The announcement comes after allegations that the U.S. package delivery company diverted two parcels destined for Huawei addresses in Asia to the United States and attempted to reroute two others. Huawei says the four packages only contain documents and no technology. FedEx confirmed the packages were misrouted in error and that they were not requested to divert them by any other party. The U.S. believes Huawei is a potential espionage threat because of its close ties with the Chinese government. The telecoms firm has repeatedly repeatedly rather denied it is controlled by the Chinese government, military or intelligence services. General Electric is planning to cut around 1,000 jobs in France, this in a move that could set the U.S. company at odds with the French government, which has consistently urged GE not to cut jobs. Last month, the company reported in its first quarter results that it had generated more profit and lost less cash than expected. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.51 Nigeria Naira, 10.60 Botswana Pula at 100.23 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.90 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.02 Brazilian Hale, 64.40 Russian ruble, 69.38 Indian rupee, 6.90 Chinese yuan, and at 14.42 South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,283 and platinum at $808 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $70.04 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now we're crossing over to the sports desk. Here is Neto Chimani with your latest sport.
Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon to you all sport fans. Starting off with football news. Tabo Senong remains confident that his charges will see off Korea Republic in a crunch FIFA Under-20 World Cup group match tonight. The South Africans suffered a humbling 5-2 defeat to Argentina in their opening Group D match at Tichy Stadium in Poland on Saturday. An SA Under-20 coach says Korea Republic's encounter would give him an indication of how far his side can progress in the competition. Korea suffered a 1-0 defeat against Amajidas Friday opponents, Portugal. Sinong reckons Amajita now have to get positive results against Korea and Portugal if they are to get to the second round where even four-third best placed finishers in the first round qualify for the last 16. Premier League side Liverpool manager Jürgen Klopp says Brazilian striker Roberto Firmino should be fit to face Tottenham Hotspur in Saturday's European Champions League final in Madrid. Firmino missed Liverpool's memorable semi-final win over Barcelona and the final game of the English Premier League season against Wolverhampton Wanderers with a muzzle strain. But Klopp says Firmino has responded well to his return to training. However, he says Naby Keita will not be fit to fit against Spurs. Um, um, and Bobby, yeah, trained, uh, was part of training last week, looked really good, everything fine. And then we took him out for uh, again and um, will be in training, I think, from tomorrow on again. So, um, yeah, all what we saw so far looked really good and, um, and yeah, he, will be, he will be fine, I'm pretty sure. Maritzburg United may be on the brink of winning the South African Premier Soccer League PSL promotional relegation playoff matches and with it retaining their APSA Premiership status, but coach Eric Tinkler has warned that they have not yet done so. The team of choice need just one point from their remaining two matches, either against Royal Eagles tomorrow or against Chakuma Chamatsibandila TTM on Saturday to complete their recovery. This after a season of strife and hardship but Tinkler says that the job is not yet over. In life there are no uh, guarantees, hence the fact it's still important for us to look to collect the three points against uh, Eagles on Wednesday. Uh, obviously the result between the two teams uh, was very beneficial towards us, but at the same time, it does not change our approach or our mindset leading into this very, very important game against Eagles. We want to collect the, the three points to ensure that we guarantee our survival. And we would like to obviously try and achieve that in, in this game against the Eagles. On to tennis news. Eighth seed Juan Martín del Potro had to recover from a set down against Chilean Nicolas Jerry to ease into the French Open second round. The former US Open champion, who only returned to action after a knee injury earlier this month, came through his opening match in Paris 3-6, 6-2, 6-1, 6-4. Del Potro has shown a good form on clay in the last two years, reaching the 2018 semifinals at Roland Garros before losing to Rafael Nadal. 
Serena Williams has admitted she considered withdrawing from the French Open after seeing her preparations disrupted by injury. The 23 the 23-time Grand Slam winner completed only one match on clay before the second Grand Slam got underway as she was forced to withdraw from her round of 32 clash at the Italian Open due to any injury and she looked sluggish during her Roland Garros opener against Russia's Vitalia Diachenko on Monday as she lost to the first set but bounced back to record a 2-6-6-2-6-1 victory. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again later on in the evening from 1900 hours for yet another hour from an African perspective. From myself, Samora Magesi, producer Leander Malme, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening.